Amen. Great truth in that hymn, what Christ has accomplished for us. It's good to see you this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're reading from Matthew chapter 4. Sean has already read our passage of Scripture this morning. We will be looking back at it. First question I have, is, I have for you is, have you been in the wilderness? Have you ever been in a wilderness area? There's a section, it's not long, it's about 10 miles wide, it's about 40 miles high, north to south, 10 miles east to west, just on the other side of the Jordan River. It's called the Devastation, is its name, and it is a wilderness area, and it's probably the area that Jesus went to. Suzanne and I like to camp. We like to camp in the winter, somewhat, but we like to camp in the summer. We like to go out into, I don't know, different campgrounds, obviously. Uh, I'm a little different. I prefer a backpack and a sleeping bag and have often slept on the ground. Anybody enjoy that? There is a risk of snakes. There's a risk of spiders. As a matter of fact, if you're in the foothills of South Carolina, there's a risk of black bears. I don't know if you were aware of that. As a matter of fact, when I first went, I went to uh, the Outfitters and Traveler's Rest, got a backpack that I rented because I didn't have one at that time. And the guy said, when you pack your food, make sure you put it in a sealed bag and hang it from a tree at night. I thought, why? why? He said, so the bears won't bother you and won't get in, so the bears won't get into your food. And I'm thinking, that sounds like that might just be like a lure in front of a fish, don't you think? <laughs> Waving it around, drawing the bear. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good idea. We're going to take a little bit of time talking about at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, his trip into the wilderness and what happened there. Many of us know and we're very familiar with the accounts in the story, but I pray that as we go through this that we will learn things that we did not know and that we will look deeper into the text and that we'll allow the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our life because there are great truths here. Um, Suzanne and I did go on a pastors and wives retreat sponsored by the North American Mission Board to a little town in North Georgia and it was called, uh, I think it was the Ritz-Carlton. Are you guys familiar with that? <laughs> All right, Ritz-Carlton on one hand, camping on the other, okay? Um, if you had to choose, which way would you go? Ritz-Carlton pretty much wins, I think. Um, it, just as a, as a woefully inadequate comparison... We're focusing on the incarnation, just the 30, 33 years of the life of Christ. Philippians says that the Lord Jesus Christ was in glory. And all that heaven has and all that it pertains. And yet, he didn't grasp the equality. He was willing to, the scripture says, empty himself. The word is kenosis. He was willing to condescend and come to the earth. In the appearance of sinful man, as fully human, yet without sin. And what he accomplished in that period of time is so, so significant that we are going to take time to look through the life of Christ all year long or however long it takes. But uh, we are going to slow down from time to time and just look at the application of this to our life. And there's nothing, I think, that applies to us more today than the passage that we're looking at today. Jesus left heaven for a sin-infested world to fix the problem of sin as by one man sin entered into the world, and so death has come to all men for all have sinned. In the same way, in this last Adam, he came to solve the problem of sin. 
And so in Matthew chapter 4, we have the temptation. Now, how many temptations were there? Just, we'll be a little interactive this morning. How many temptations were there? Uh, we typically have three in Scripture, correct? You have the bread, the stones into bread. After 40 days, he was hungry, stones into bread. And then depending upon which gospel and which one you read, you have the, the, the taking to the pinnacle of the temple, cast yourself down. God has promised to take care of you. Those are the sins category-wise of pre- presumption. So we have the sins of adit- appetites, and then you have the sins of assumption or presumption. And then, of course, you have the sins of ambition. If you'll just bow the knee to me, I'll give you all of this, and you won't have to go through everything that you're anticipating to go to. Uh, I want you to know that in our text, it says it shows identify those, but we need to make sure that we understand a few things. Jesus was tempted the whole 40 days he was in the wilderness, and he was tempted throughout his whole life on earth. He was tempted as a child. He was tempted as a, as a young adult, as a youth, as a high school age, and then as a young adult. He was tempted in the wilderness, and he was tempted throughout his ministry. And yet he overcame. Jesus faced a lifetime of temptation. And so the first point on your listening guide, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to this morning, if nothing else, I'll give you some references to look up, is that you too should expect a lifetime of temptation. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are placed in him and he is placed in us, we're no longer citizens of the earth and we need to recognize that we're in a hospital hostile environment we live in a place where satan has been granted great authority as a matter of fact if you just look at one of the temptations in our text today verse 8 the devil took jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and the devil satan said to him all of these i'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me and you may think well how does the devil get off making that claim i mean he is a liar he is the father of lies He's just bloviating. He's just bragging. He's making promises he can't keep. And yet, there's nothing in the text, nor even in the New Testament, that gives us any idea that Satan would not have been able to keep that promise to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things I will give you if you'll you'll fall down. Luke gives us a little different perspective on this. In Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter on this same account, the devil, verse 5, uh, four, chapter 4, verse 5, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, the Satan said to Jesus, to you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will if you'll just worship me. All of this can be yours I want you to recognize that as Jesus entered really the condescension into the wilderness, the 30 years on the earth, but particularly in this wilderness, you and I live in also a wilderness of temptation. We live in an environment that it, where Satan has been granted a great deal of authority. We need to recognize that he is actively engaged in encouraging rebellion among the children of God. He's the chief rebel who encourages rebellion. And so you and I need to expect a lifetime of temptation. Unless you think that Satan does not have this authority, in, in John, it's recorded that Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. It's John chapter 12, verse 31. You can write these notes down and just kind of go back and look them up later. But John 12, 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's describing those who are blinded. And he tells the, the readers, he tells us, 
that they're blinded by the God of this world. Small g God, they're still God, but he is the God of this world. And then in 1 John chapter 5, you have really a more comprehensive statement where John writes and says, The whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so I just want to recognize, want you to recognize this morning we're talking about one, that we have an enemy, that we have an adversary, that we have a, a, a roaring lion, if you will, that we live in a place that requires that we be diligent in being prepared to face temptation. Now, Mark gives a brief statement that I think is worthy of our attention. By the way, the, the experience of Jesus in the wilderness is recorded in Matthew and it's recorded in Mark, two verses. And it's recorded in Luke longer. And so we're going to kind of look at different verses or different perspectives from all three Gospels as we go through this text this morning. But Mark gives a brief statement that I think is worthy of our attention. It says he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Again, tempted all 40 days, not, not simply three times at the end of his, of his fast. But it also says, and Jesus was with the wild animals, and later, of course, that he was ministered to by angels. In a wilderness environment, you can become very quickly acclimated to your environment. And we as Christians don't fit in with the world, and I hope you've experienced that. So, I'm just going to ramble here a minute. But when you get saved, you become something you've never been before. You become a child of God. You live in a world that was created by God, but how did the world receive God when He came? He came into His own, and His own received him not Jesus told his disciples the world unlike me is that what he said is that what he said the world hates me and as you follow me the world is going to hate you too all right you need to recognize that when we come to Christ we're going to be swimming upstream all of our life one of my dad's favorite sayings a long time ago was son stand for truth any dead fish can float downstream you need to be alive in the power of Christ because all of the world is going to be heading one way and you're going to be heading overall in your life the opposite direction. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so there's always a temptation to just go along. The temptation to mediocrity. The temptation to compromise. The temptation to not fulfill all righteousness or allow the righteousness of Christ to be applied in your life. There's always a temptation to compromise. Satan is a rebel and he wants you to rebel against the one that you have already surrendered your life to. The one that you've already yielded to follow, to live for, and to allow to live in you. And he's active. I've never been, as I said, to the Judean wilderness. It's smaller than Death Valley. It's more like what we call a desert out west than what we would picture in the Sahara. It's rocks, plants, animals, and dangers. But right now, when I think of wilderness, that's not the wilderness I think of. Right now, I think of this kind of wilderness. And see if you can see this on the screen or not. If you can look on the front of your worship guide. Does that look like wilderness to you? Do you know where that is? That's Alaska. That's Alaska. There are parts of Alaska. That is a picture taken in Alaska. And there is an Alaskan wilderness, and I'm very aware of that because I have a daughter that lives in Alaska. Chrissy and Brandon and four of my precious grandchildren have gone to live in the wilderness of Kodiak, Alaska. Now, 
When they got there, they had an orientation before they got there. And one, they, they were told to expect or to be prepared for two things that I never have to worry about living in Powdersville, South Carolina. The very real threat of tsunamis. Kodiak is an island. The very real threat of tsunamis. I'm pretty sure Powdersville's safe. Okay. But also, it's called Kodiak Island. Have you guys ever heard of Kodiak bears? The largest kind of grizzly bear that there is, the most ferocious kind of grizzly bear that there is, Kodiak, Alaska. And so they were warned, beware of tsunamis, you'll get a warning, we'll do drills, but also you need to be aware of bears. Now, I thought, well, sure, there are going to be bears there, but they'll be out there somewhere. And Chrissy, the very first week that she's there, says, look what we saw today. And as the kids were coming home from school, a bear came out of the trees where the kids were. And, of course, wisely they knew what to do, and, and, and some adults were there and, and, and managed the situation. But they, this is an overstatement, all right? They live among bears. Uh, it has greatly enhanced Suzanne and mine's prayer life. Just wanted to let you know that. But they're acclimated to it now, and they're aware and they know what steps to take. But there's always the danger of the wild animal that would tear them up. Now, when we become assimilated or acclimated to a rough area, sometimes that which is difficult or challenging becomes so common to us we can make it cute. Have you ever seen a cute bear? Can I show you the cutest bear on the face of the planet? How about that one? <laughs> Grandparents' prerogative, okay? I submitted the photo for the slideshow. That's my granddaughter, Bristol, at three years old, being a bear. Rawr. The danger is that when we become too acclimated, sometimes we take a real danger and we don't view it as a real danger. And so I want to show you a dangerous kind of bear. This is the Kodiak bear. That you don't want to see, it's not cute and cuddly, buddy. <laughs> this is the one you don't want to see coming at you. And, and now, let, me, let me just tell you, and I know this is a little personal and it's a little casual, but listen. Satan is cunning and Satan is crafty. When Kendra said, what should we put on the cover of the prayer guide? And I'm thinking, who's the most attractive man and who's the most attractive woman? Because that's as good a picture of Satan as you'll ever get. Because we think of Satan as red horns and fork. And yet Satan is that which attracts you. He is, he is like an angel of light. He was an angel of light. And he has a lot of tools that he will use. And I will tell you frankly, he knows what your price is. He knows what draws you. He knows what attracts you. And he is active and he has many tools. And his objective in your life is to break your fellowship with God. The chief rebel wants you to rebel. He wants you to bring reproach to the name of Christ. And when we love the world or when we're drawn to the things of the world, when we settle on our own pride and our own accomplishments, all of that will have far-reaching effects on the spread of the gospel, the glory of God, and, and my own life, the peace in my own life. Was Satan active with the disciples really quickly? Yes. You remember Judas? What do you think of when you think of Judas? Traitor, betrayer, 
The disciples didn't think so. They made him the treasurer. In John 13, we have a, a startling statement. Satan came into him and he went out immediately and betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. What about Peter? Was Peter tempted? Did Satan have any impact upon him? You remember Mark chapter 8, by the way, if you guys are reading along with our, our daily Bible reading, if you hadn't come to this yet, you're going to come to it very soon this week. What you'll find is that Peter makes a claim that sides with the world and Satan's perspective rather than siding with Christ. And Jesus tells him, get thee behind me. And what does he call him? Satan. As a matter of fact, later on, after Peter denies Christ and Later on, when Christ is walking with Peter, or actually, uh, as, as Christ is walking with Peter, I think it's John 21, Jesus tells Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. We have a tempter. We have an enemy who is active, and we need to be constantly vigilant. We need to expect a lifetime of temptation. That's why we're slowing down in our chronological story of the life of Christ. We face daily temptations. Some of them are overt. Some of them are subtle. And I want us all to be prepared and equipped to be faithful and to be strengthened. Let me tell you, I just want to follow closely after Christ. I want my fellowship with Christ to be intimate. And I want the same thing for you. I want us all to be uninterruptedly in communion with our Heavenly Father so that the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we do, the decisions that we make, where we go, how we spend our money, the conversations that we have, what we're willing to give up, what we must hold on to and never give up, gives glory to God in every aspect of our life. There is too much compromise in my life and too much compromise in yours. And this is a progression of continually drawing closer to him, continually seeing things that are really temptation that we've just become acclimated to, and it's no big deal anymore. And it's allowing God to work and to shift and to change our beliefs and our behavior as we walk in obedience to him. The world says, hey, come on, man, you can do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, you should do it. Uh, you should, the world is not friendly or positive to us when we stand against this. Remember what the first temptation was? Did God really say? Did God really say? Yeah, look at this fruit. It's beautiful to the eye. Look at this fruit. It'll be good for your stomach. I know you're hungry. And it'll make you wise. As a matter of fact, it'll make you like God. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not of God. But whoever does the will of God will live forever. It's important. To understand that we need to expect a lifetime of trans transition. But I want to sh show something about this. By the way, we're not going really deep into the text this week. This is the summary to prepare us for what's coming. So this is part one. There's three more. All of February, we're dealing with temptation. Isn't that great? Aren't you excited? All right. But it's important that, that we understand some, some great truths. Number one, you're going to be tempted. Number two, because you're tempted, when you're tempted... Satan doesn't have to win. And so there's a second point I want you to write down in your, in, in your note that we're going to look at here. We need to recognize that Jesus is our victory. In Jesus, we have victory. Jesus is our victory. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, what does the Lord tell us to pray? What does the model prayer tell us to pray about temptation? Father, lead us not into temptation. What's going on in this text? In, 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 in Matthew, it says the Holy Spirit led him into, epsilon, iota, sigma, into 
the desert or into the wilderness. Luke says he let him in, E-N, just in, it means in. Mark says the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, ek balo, ek meaning out, balo means to cast or throw. The Holy Spirit threw him into the wilderness. Uh, ESV translates it as drove him into the wilderness. I want you to understand that this temptation is not something that Jesus just fell into. What just happened? What, what was the, the, the very last thing that we have a record of in the New Testament? The baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes out of the water. The heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a, go- of a dove. God speaks verbally and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Holy Spirit cast him out into the wilderness. And voluntarily for 40 days, he does not eat. He fasts. Voluntarily for 40 days. He goes into the wilderness intentionally to face the temper. Sorry, the tempter. And there he conquers him. Now, Adam, like us, we get beat up by temptation. Jesus has come and he has won the victory. I want you to know that when I've studied this, I've read all kind, of, all kind of commentaries, and people are all over the place on this, and I'm going to share with you what I believe is conviction. I believe this is far more than just being a model for how we're supposed to face temptation. Christ's experience in the wilderness is more than just saying, all right, when the devil tempts you, you need to quote a verse of Scripture at him, and he'll go away, which is one of the things I've been taught. And I've got to tell you, that's not true. The devil knows the Bible better than I do most of the time. This is more than being a model. This is, part, this is part of Christ's redemptive work. Are we saved by Christ's death? Yes is the correct answer. Are we saved by Christ's life? Yes. Romans chapter 5. Having therefore been justified by his death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? We forget sometimes that it's more than simply the death of Christ. It is the perfect righteousness of the life of Christ while he was on the earth. Anytime a toddler lost their temper or anytime a, a young a, a kid, 8, 9, 10, disobeys their parents or anytime a, a youth succumbs to temptation with attitude or behavior, anytime a young adult does or anytime an adult does, every time we did it wrong, Christ was tempted in the same manner as we are And he did it right. He didn't yield to temptation. His righteous life is what made him worthy as the precious Lamb of God. But more than that, the righteousness of his life is what is applied to our life. Listen, my life is weaker than it should be. It's more sinful than it should be. I look at the call to be holy, and I can't. I want to please God, and I make a mess of things. Now, I can discipline my body and get on some sort of behavioral modification thing. I can train my mind, and I can give it my all, but it remains out of my reach. I need perfect human righteousness applied to me. Jesus' life is sinless, now get that, as a man he fulfilled all righteousness, 100% man, 100% God, but 100% man, he fulfilled all righteousness in order that his righteousness can be applied to us. Now, do we have time for a little theological excursus? Will you guys bear with me? Yeah, hold on now. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? 
And, and, and I would encourage you not to answer aloud yet. I want you to think about it. Uh, James chapter 1 says, uh, when you're tempted, don't say you're tempted by God, for God tempts no man, and God himself cannot be tempted, correct? That's what it says clearly in James chapter 1. And so the idea that Jesus could not have sinned because of his deity is called the impeccability of Christ. There's, there's your 25-cent word for the day. Impeccability. Impeccability of Christ. He could not have sinned. That has been the traditional stance for most of evangelical Christianity for a long, long time. But there's another stance that is, again, been around for a long time. And it says the peccability of Christ, peccability that Christ could have sinned. He could have sinned. But the way that it's framed is because of his deity, Christ, it's impossible for him to sin. The other side says, no, the, the distinctiveness about the peccability of Christ is it was possible for Christ not to sin. Do, do you understand that statement? It's possible for Christ not to sin. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible for you not to sin? And the answer to that question is no. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 should dispel any notion that you can be sinless, that you can go consistently, always and ever, and not sin. 1 John chapter 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness. That's a, that's a big point that we need to make. Who are the only two men in the world who are able to say no to sin? who are able to not sin, fully able to not sin, who are the only two men in the history of the world since creation who are able to have not sinned. The first man, Adam, and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? What's the point that I'm making? I don't want to get you off on that too, too, too deeply. I think it's a great truth. But here's the point. I believe that this temptation was a very real temptation. I don't think Jesus took Satan out in the wilderness to beat him up. <laughs> I read a commentator this week, and I'm thinking, buddy, we're not reading the same scripture. This guy said, Jesus took Satan out in the scripture with one arm time behind his back. He fasted 40 days. Adam, when he was tempted, he had all those other trees to eat. Jesus fasted for 40 days. And Satan talked to Adam in just a couple of sentences. Uh, he had Adam and Eve eaten out of his hand. Satan tempted Jesus for, for 40 days consistently, and, and he never was able to break him down. This, Satan went it because he couldn't, because he's God. And so Satan was a victim in this. Jesus went just out there to beat Satan up and to show him that he was, he was destined to lose. I got news for you. I'm fully convinced that Satan believed that he could short-circuit God's plan right as his ministry started. That Satan didn't tempt Jesus as some sort of a trial exercise or some sort of, some sort of uh, theological exercise recorded for our benefit. I believe Satan intended to thwart God's plan through the, of the righteousness of, of the life of Christ, the human life of Christ, and this temptation was real. And I believe that Jesus withstood it. I believe that Jesus conquered him totally and completely as recorded in our passage of Scripture all Christian theologians agree that Christ is sinless. Not all Christian theologians believe that Christ could have sinned. I will tell you, I believe for this temptation to be legitimate, Satan believed it was legitimate. 
And I believe that Christ could have sinned. Why did Jesus come? He came to reverse the problem of Adam. We're born in sin, not able to not sin. Christ came, born not of Adam, but of, but of God, and was able to not sin. And so Christ knows fully, really, experientially knows what we experience in temptation. And if you want some, some, some scripture passages to look up, look up Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4. Where to pay the penalty for sin, to solve the sin problem, Christ had to become a man. And then in chapter 4, how that he was tempted in every manner as we heard just a little while ago and as we sang just a little while ago. 100% God, 100% man. But here's the point of the text. Jesus won the victory for us. Jesus won the victory for us. Here's what I want you to know. Not only did his sinless life qualifying for his death on the cross, this sinless Lord Jesus Christ can give us victory over temptation today and every day. It is ultimate victory. It is in eternity in his presence, but it's victory today as well. You see, when you came to Christ, you became placed in Christ. And here's the good news. Christ became placed in you. You became the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. God lives with you. And in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is praying for the, for the Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul is praying for the Christians at Ephesus, if you start at verse 9 and kind of go down and see that prayer that he prays, one of the things that he prays is that you'll just be really aware of the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives and works in you. And that he in you can withstand temptation. And, and of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that, that you're not taken by any temptation, but God is faithful and just who will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's the point here? Number one, we want to see what Christ accomplished in his perfect holy life. But number two, and some of you have learned this, don't come up to me and say, well, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I have a hard time telling the truth all the time. I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I get angry all the time. I just can't help it. It's just the way I am. I'm nervous and, and anxious all the time. I just, I just, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. And that may be an accurate statement up to this moment. But can I tell you that Christ, if you know him, has made you something that you've never been before, and he has given you his life, and he is in the process of transforming you, of conforming you to the image of his son, and he has the power to make you just the way he is. We can be clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Have I made you mad yet? We play with things that matter. We're going to stand before holy God. And I shudder what my excuses are going to be when he calls me to account for what I have done or what I have not done, for how I have obeyed or how I have not obeyed. For when I've been faithful or when I've not been faithful. Holiness has lost its draw, its, its importance, its significance, even its meaning in current life. 
And we're motivated by what God can do for us more than what God has done for us and God desires to do in us and God desires to do through us. And when we look at the life of Christ, we see a fully human, fully God, fully human man, totally devoted. Yes, he ate. Yes, when he didn't eat, he got hungry. Yes, he was tempted in every manner like as we are. And we get satisfied with, oh, we're just good enough. This is okay. This is life. We're okay. We're okay. We just, we're, we're just going to coast when God calls us to so much more. Here's what I want you to know. You're going to be tempted as you go through life. You need to expect a lifetime of temptation. But you've been given victory. You have been given victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But that requires something of you. It requires something of you. The third point on your outline is that you need to be engaged in this fight. You need to diligently fight temptation daily. And I, I use the word fight on purpose. It's a fight. It's a battlefield. It's not a game. It's a fight. We need to have daily victories. In that passage in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in Christ, ought to, abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. First Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain. There are some things that we don't do from the passions that wage war. There's daily war being raged against your soul. And we don't even know it. Sometimes it's so subtle, we completely miss it. Hebrews chapter 12 and I love this challenge. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And this is in holiness and in obedience and in yieldedness. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We've got to get past good enough. We've got to get past it's just the way I am. We've got to get past And don't say this around me either unless you want a sermon. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's a true statement, but it, it, it is used as a lie. You are a sinner saved by grace. And when you got saved by grace, you became a saint. You became hagias, holy, set apart, indwelled by the Spirit of God. we got to get past this defeatist, I just can't thing. Here's what I want you to know. The Bible never said you could. The Bible said he can, and he did, and he will, and therefore the life that I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to pursue holiness. How do you do that? Pursue Christ. Why? Why? I want to give you four things, and I'm going to do this fast. Can you listen really fast? Write down these references. We're going to put them on the screen. I'll read them really quick. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 11 and going through 5, verse 15, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation, this is the foundation of a life, a foundation of ministry. If you build on it with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work, the way you live your life, what you do, will become manifest on display. For the day, that's the day of judgment, when, when we stand before God, we'll disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. A, a, a judgment, if you will. And the fire will test what sort of work we've done. The work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, 
He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here's what I want you to know. Our righteousness, our holiness, our dependence upon God and seeing victory over temptation and glorifying God with our testimony and with our life and allowing God to work in us stores up rewards for us. And that's a big deal. When I was young, I didn't think savings accounts mattered much. I'm an old man now. They matter a lot more. But can I tell you something? A lot of people say, oh, I just want to get to heaven. I don't really care about as long as I'm there, I'll be fine. I want you to know you'll miss it there. You don't want to suffer loss when you stand before God. You want to be able to present to Him all the work that He has done in you and through you. And so the first reason, there are benefits and rewards to obedience. And I don't know what, how this shows up on your listening guide, but you can just write these down. The, the very first thing that shows up is, is when we are holy, when we pursue holiness, when we, when we fight the temptation uh, and don't yield to the sin that we are tempted to, there are benefits and rewards. The second, 2 Timothy chapter 2, it increases our usefulness to God. Paul writing to Timothy says, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from those things that are dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You want to be used by God? You want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? You want to allow God full control and full access so that God is fully glorified in, in where you live and how you live and the things that you do? This matters. You become more useful to God when you don't compromise your life with settled, settling for sin and rebellion against the clear teaching of God's word. The other thing, again, the next one is simply uh, obedience strengthens your testimony. Romans chapter 2 <laughs> Paul's writing, the Jews are his audience here, and he said, you teach others, teach yourself. You preach against stealing, but you still. You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what I want you to understand. You guys ever heard that church down there has a really bad reputation? That's a fighting church, or that's a lying church, or that's a gossiping church, or that church hurts people. I want you to know that sometimes those reputations are deserved because of the immaturity and the sinfulness of the congregation. It's not an indictment on Christ, but it is perceived as an indictment on Christ by the world that we're trying to reach. Do you understand the difference? It matters as far as testimony is concerned. Your testimony how God wants to use the work that he's done. Paul wrote to the Philippians. And he had invested in them. And he shared the gospel with them. And he lived a good portion of his life, a small section of his life. It's early in his missionary journey. But he went to the house of Lydia. And you, can, you can study the background of all of that. But he invested so much in them. They invested in him in return. They supported him. And, and when he talks about them, he says, You are my crown enjoy you are my testimony paul says you want to see what's going on in my life look at the people i've invested my life in i want you to know when we proclaim the name of christ when we live in a way that is holy and godly and that glorifies him not compromise not yielding to temptation not playing with stuff that really matters that we shouldn't be playing with at all god becomes increasingly glorified in our life so not only for future rewards 
and not only for usefulness and not only for our testimony, but I do deal with people who say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And what has happened is a person got saved. They believed in Christ, committed their life to Him. God regenerated them and made them new. And then because of a lack of discipleship on somebody else's part or a lack of obedience on their own, their life became so like the world that there was no distinction between them and the world that we have been saved from. And when they look around, they don't see a difference. And their conscience has been seared to the point that they don't feel a difference. And so any assurance of what God has done on their behalf goes away. Hebrews chapter 6. Paul, uh, not Paul, I don't know who wrote Hebrews. God wrote Hebrews. And he said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same, or to have the full assurance of hope. Have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promises. All right. Here's what you need to do. You need to expect a lifetime of temptation. Unless that gets you depressed, here's what you need to recognize. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our victory. But it's a battle that you are engaged in, daily engaged in, and able to be victorious in. We diligently fight temptation daily, remembering that though we are in a hostile environment, the life which we live, we live by faith in the one who did not yield to temptation, but fully satisfied the righteous requirements of a holy God. Now, I don't know about you, this is pretty exciting to me. I think, I think we've got some things that we're going to be studying over the next few weeks uh, about appetites, about hungry, the, 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 the lust of the flesh. How do we, what are those temptations? How do we face those temptations? How do we have victories in those, those temptations? What about the sins of presumption? I'll just do this. God will take care of this. Or I'm just going to make this presumption in that one. How do we recognize temptations? And how do we glorify God as we face those temptations? And, of course, pride of life. Ambition. Ambition. Uh, we need to make sure that our ambitions are God's ambitions. And how do we do that in the daily decisions of life? I'm excited. It's going to be a good month. Happy Valentine's Month. Isn't it a great time to be serving the Lord? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the time that we have this morning just to look at the temptation of Christ. And while I do tend to, as I read and study, tend to think of it how it applies to me personally and how it applies to me individually and what I need to do to stand against temptation. But I pray that you'll broaden our understanding this morning. I pray that you'll help us to understand what Christ did, tempted in every manner, just as we are. You took him to the wilderness. You tell us not to, to pray that you lead us not in temptation. You cast him into the wilderness. And there, able to not sin, and yet fully tempted just as we are, he withstood every temptation. He conquered Satan. He conquered the temptation. He did the will of his Father in heaven in all that he said and in all that he did. Being righteous, he paid the penalty for our sin that we might have life, new life, real life, life in Christ. He comes to live within us, and all of a sudden, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ.
I pray that you will equip us as we just read the scriptures, as we learn, as we put our faith and our trust in you. I pray that you'll equip us so that we, we stop playing with things that are serious, so that we embrace the things that matter for eternity, so that we recognize the absence of, uh, not the absence, so that we enjoy the presence of peace and joy and rest and your strength and your provision, recognizing that we're in a war that you have already won. God be glorified in us. In your name I pray. Amen.